Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Our reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, and I will be reading from verse 1 up to around verse 16. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 16. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives unto God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Praise the Lord. Today we are privileged to hear from one of the great apostles, the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Rome, one the kind of letter where we find some of the major doctrines of the Christian faith. And one of those things the Apostle Paul deal with, with from chapter 1 through chapter 6 and onwards, is the doctrine of justification. The Apostle Paul helped the church at Rome to understand that mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. He helps them understand the folly of unbelieving, the danger of living outside of Christ, the danger of thinking that you can be perfect or righteous apart from Jesus Christ. But he also helps them to understand and to live in the hope of those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And he tells them that for one to be right with Christ, it cannot be by the law. It cannot be by human effort. 
it can only be by justification through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as we read these passages, you will not help but notice that there is a constant reference to grace and the law. Grace and the law are some of the most controversial teachings amongst Christians today. The relationship between the two continues to trouble even the most devoted of Christians. And in the wake of the modern grace movement, it has become even more necessary and urgent for us to respond to these controversies, to the relationship between grace and the law. And a key question to have at the back of your mind is this. Are New Testament believers under grace only and not under the law? Why do we pose this question? Because we have the modern grace movement today that is teaching people that as Christians we are only New Testament believers because the New Testament is all about grace, so they say. You will hear time and again in their teachings that the Old Testament is no longer relevant for a believer simply because after Jesus came and died, he extended grace to those who believe and now we are only grace believers who have been saved by grace and really don't care about the dictates of the law or its relevance for us and for Christian living today. Some of their teachers even actually portray the God of the Old Testament as a God who is harsh and vindictive and claim that the God of the New Testament is gentle, tender, forgiving, giving second chances. And they are quick to tell people to develop a relationship with the God of the New Testament while forsaking the God of the Old. Some of these teachers will even teach that Old Testament believers were saved by keeping the law, while New Testament believers are saved by grace through faith alone. So in other words, the quick way is don't think about the Old Testament, don't think about the law, just think about grace and the New Testament. According to modern grace teaching, all the law has been abolished and therefore Christians are no longer under any obligation to observe the law. We can now live the way we want and because especially they claim Jesus paid it all. And as the Apostle Paul says, where there is no law, there is no sin. Isn't that right? So out of this view, you have a generation of believers who abuse the law of God by disregarding it totally and living as though the God who gave law is non-existent. Now as you listen to the Apostle Paul expounding this wonderful doctrine of justification in the book of Romans, you can't help but notice that the Apostle Paul is equally aware of the controversy. He wants to help believers at Rome understand the place of the law and what role the law played to bring them to the place where they would embrace mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. But that is not all. He wants to help them appreciate the implications of God's grace. Now that grace is available and has brought salvation that the law could not bring to you, what does this mean for you? Do you leave the law behind and move forward by grace? Or does grace actually help you to understand 
appreciate, comprehend, and live in obedience to the law of Christ Jesus. So that's what we want to look at today. But as we look at Paul's writing to the church at Rome, there are a few things that we need to first clear. Is it really true that the Old Testament is all about the law and not grace, and therefore has ceased to be relevant for today's Christian? Is it also really true that the New Testament is just all about grace, about a gentle, tender, loving God who does not punish sin, who actually does overlook it? And is it true that you will not find law in the Old Testament? Now if we go back to our first question, that the Old Testament is just about the law and not grace, you are actually going to realize that it is not true. In fact, you cannot even begin to think about the Bible from beginning to end without coming to terms with the evident grace of God almost on every page of Scripture. You just need to go back to creation and go back to the beginning. If you understand that the grace of God is actually meaning the undeserved and merited favor of the Lord, then you will even realize that the existence of creation itself is an act of grace. Who asked God to create the world? Who asked God to design the, the, the world the way he did? Who asked God to create particular species, to create even mankind himself? God, out of his own choice, in his own wisdom, voluntarily, without any pressure or coercion, chooses to create whatever is today. And deserved, and called for, and asked for, and what do you call that if it is not grace? Think about man in the Garden of Eden. God has created him, and he comes voluntarily, again without any coercion, and gives him dominion over the created order. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the things that move on the land. And God says, all these, I give you dominion over them. You will enjoy the fruit of the garden. You will have every good thing you can ever imagine. Whatever your eyes see today is now under your care and jurisdiction. Did Adam ask for these things? No. Did he deserve them? No. Yet the gracious God extends these favors to Adam, makes him a steward of creation, not because Adam deserves it, but God so chooses. An act of God's marvelous grace in the book of Genesis. You come to the story of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. They have sinned. And God has made it categorically clear that on the day they eat of the fruit that was forbidden them, they will surely die. We come to Genesis chapter 3 and they have done the forbidden. Eve has not only eaten the fruit, she has passed it on to her husband. Now let's see what God is going to do. Will the just God actually extend his justice and judgment to them? Yes, he does. He cuts them off from the Garden of Eden. Yes, he does. From that time on, they are spiritually separated from God. Fellowship between the loving God and man who has become sinful is cut asunder. No longer will they enjoy things in the garden. An angel is put there to protect them from ever coming back. Now they must suffer. They must work. They must toil before they can have anything to eat. And we can see the justice of God at work. But what we always don't see is the grace that is sandwiched in the justice of God. 
Are you aware that God could have even physically killed them immediately, instantly, and they would have died from there? End of the story. But God doesn't do that. In fact, even in the pronouncement of curses, we still see an echo of God's grace. Do you notice that when he tells Eve that because of what you have done, you will have child bearing or you will bear children in pains, in labor pains? Yes, in a way that's a curse. But do you realize in a way that's also an act of grace? Yes, Eve will have labor pains, but yes, she will have children that she does not deserve. When he comes to Adam, what does he say? From the sweat of your hands, you shall have bread. For sure, Adam will have to sweat for what he eats. But do you realize that in his sweat, he will find bread? He could have sweated and still not had any harvest. But God extends bread to him as well. And later we are told that the same God kills an animal and gets animal skins and clothes them. An act of grace. You come to Adam and Eve, they have had children, Cain and Abel. And we are told about Cain slaying his own brother Abel out of jealousy. And what does God do? He comes gently and asks Cain, hoping Cain will understand his guilt and his sin and repent. And he asks him, where is your brother? And you know Cain's response. Who made me my brother's keeper? Interestingly, as the story unfolds, Cain who deserves to die just as he has killed his brother, God is actually promising to protect him. Cain is worried, now what will happen to me? You have banished me. If I find that uh, people out there and they kill me, and God says no, in fact whoever touches you will be punished more times than you have been punished. If you don't call that grace, what do you call it? Now let's move on forward. We come to Noah's time. The whole world is in a mess. Man has seen to the extent that God even regrets why he ever created man. And God says, I will destroy everything on the face of the earth. And then you come to Genesis chapter 6 and we are told, And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right there, grace in the Old Testament. And the story continues. You come to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. A man living across the river, involved in idol worship unaware of the presence of God. And who calls Abraham? God. He calls Abraham. Abraham responds to the voice, acts on the promises that God gives him by faith. And we see God promising to bless him and to make him a channel of blessing to the nations, not because of what Abraham has done, but because of what God has chosen to graciously lavish upon him. And the story could continue with Moses. The story could continue with uh, the children of Israel. We see the same promises and same evidences of grace show up. Israel is in the promised land. God has given them the Ten Commandments. He has told them that they will be blessed on obedience and they will be cast upon disobedience. Time and again, we see them living in disobedience. God punishes them and sends them to exile. But even in the midst of exile, he sends them prophets who prophesy grace, who prophesy hope, who prophesy restoration. A key point on that is Jeremiah's letter to the captives in Babylon. You read Jeremiah chapter 9. The captives are in Babylon. Out of their sin, God has banished them from their land in Jerusalem. 
But even in Babylon, God still speaks through Jeremiah to give them a promise of hope that after 70 years, the same gracious, loving God would restore them, not because they have really changed, but because he so graciously wishes to restore them back into the land. You cannot make sense of the Old Testament apart from the gracious hand of God that is evident in every period, in every era. If you ever hear anybody who tells you that the Old Testament is irrelevant simply because it is all about the law, just to know that that person has not studied his Old Testament very well. The same God who gives the law is the same God who extends grace to lawbreakers. And of course, number two, we come to the New Testament. And modern grace movement people will be quick to tell you that the New Testament is just about grace and not about the law. And indeed you will see a number of passages that talk about grace all over the place. But again, you cannot fail to notice that the law of God is still in effect. The law of God is still recommended to believers who are now recipients of grace and they are still told how they must live their lives in fear of the same holy God who has laid moral standards by which God's people must live. A point in case is Romans. Paul is still in this letter. In chapter 7 verse 12, listen to what he says. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just and good. You would think that Paul, a New Testament believer, a recipient of grace, would be telling the believers in Rome that just celebrate God's grace, don't really worry about the law. No. He instead is the one who is commending the Lord to them and reminding them about its holiness and its purity. Of course, later he will tell them how this law continues to work in their lives. Before they became saved, the law was a guide for them to the Messiah. Now the law becomes a guide on how they need to live their lives in light of what grace has done for them. Yes, they have been saved by grace, but now as grace people, they must now live to honor and to please the Lord. And for them to know that they are living Christ-honoring lives, the law must become a guide, must become a standard by which they measure themselves. You come to First John chapter 5, verse 3. And the Apostle John writes to the believers, and he says that for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Once again we see the Apostle John not only affirms that the commandments of the Lord are worthy of keeping, and of course by commandments I do not mean the civil or the ceremonial law that the community of Israel would have observed in the Old Testament, I mean the moral law of God. The Apostle John is also aware that there are believers that might be having doubts as to the place of the law, and so he is quick to remind them that God's commandments are not grievous. You come to Jesus himself, who gives us a summary of the Ten Commandments, and is saying, what are these commandments really about? They are about love for God and love for neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then number two, he says, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. He summarizes the first four commandments as love for God and the remaining six commandments as love for one another. But what is Jesus actually saying? He is saying that the commandments are still relevant even in the New Testament times. 
Is, the, is, is love for God still relevant for all believers in all ages? Yes. Is there a place in our lives where as believers we are called upon not to love our neighbors? No. So what does that mean? That while love for God and love for neighbor is still relevant to believers of all ages, then the law of the Lord is still in effect. The law of the Lord is still to be heeded. And wise is the man who remembers that and who obeys and walks according to the guidance of God's moral law. God's moral law was repeated in the New Testament as well, as we will see. Even when you look at Ephesians, especially from chapter 4, 5 and chapter 6, we see the Apostle Paul reiterating the Ten Commandments. He tells the church at Ephesus not to steal, not to be angry, not to covet, not to commit sexual immorality, not to be idolaters, and to honor their fathers and mothers. What is that? A reiteration of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the New Testament writers repeatedly use the Ten Commandments as standards of holiness for the church because they understand that the law reflects the character and the nature of God. Now sometimes verses on grace in the New Testament seem to contradict the need of the law. There are places in the Bible where you will hear the apostles present the relationship between the two as though they were in contradiction. For instance, when you read Romans chapter 6 from verses 14 to 15, the apostle Paul says that for sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law but under grace. Now, to the modern grace movement, reading a passage like this is a hands up for them to say, you see, I am no longer under the law. I am now under grace. I no longer have to worry about this. But what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says you are no longer under the law? Is he saying you can now start stealing, you can kill people, you can lie, you can dishonor your parents because the law is no longer in effect? No. The Apostle Paul is saying we are no longer under the condemnation of the law, especially for those who have found refuge in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is saying that the law no longer acts as a tutor to lead us to Christ since we are already Christians. Instead, what it now does is to become a guiding standard, a standard reference, a pivot by which we measure, we assess ourselves, and then surrender to Christ, who continues enabling us to obey and sanctifying us as we continue to be conformed in the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, the law of God is still in effect, but it is not observed so we can be saved because we already are, but it is observed as a standard for our sanctification and as we continue to cooperate with the Spirit of God as He shows us our sin, as He shows us our breaking of the law, and we find forgiveness and grace in Christ Jesus. And that's why the Apostle Paul will not only stop at verse 14, but he goes on and he says that what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Shall we sin so that grace may increase? And he says, God forbid. No, we cannot continue to sin simply because we are no longer under the law. That would be a strict disregard not only of the law, but an abuse or a misuse of the grace of God. Because grace has come, it's not a license for sin. It is actually a motivation to live right. 
Now that we have died to sin and we are living unto righteousness, all the more reason to endeavor not to live like we once used to, as law breakers, but now as law keepers, as people who fulfill the law of the Lord in Christ Jesus. So in summary, we can see that it is not true that the Old Testament is all about the law. There is actually grace and law in the Old Testament. Neither is it true that the New Testament is only of grace. But we see grace in the New Testament. We also see the law of God reiterated, reinterpreted in the New Testament. And it is still shown to be a relevant standard for those who have become recipients of God's grace. Now they must no longer live for themselves and their sinful desires. They must live for their Savior Jesus Christ who has not only died but through him the law has found its fulfillment and perfection and therefore in obedience to the law of Christ they essentially obey the moral law of God himself. We must understand that the whole of the Bible is relevant for all believers and for all times. The Old Testament and the New taken together form the rich soil from which God's gospel of grace blossoms and becomes effectual in the lives of those that believe and follow the Lord. It is very, very important that we understand that the grace and the law of God actually do work together. That's why we will see the Apostle Paul writing to young Titus and in chapter 2 verse 11 he tells us the functions of the grace or the role of grace in the life of believers. Number one he tells us that the grace of God which brings salvation to all men has been revealed and it does a number of things. Now one of those things is that it teaches believers how to live right with God. And how does it teach them? It teaches them to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. What does this mean? That the grace of God which is now at work in their lives gives them the power, gives them the ability to live righteously in the presence of the Lord. Now they are able to obey the law without any hassle because the grace of God is at work. Those who were stealing now realize they don't have to steal anymore. Those who were living in immorality now realize that in Christ Jesus they have the power to say no to sexual temptation. Those who were indulging themselves in the temporal pressures of this world now begin to live for eternity and out of their view for eternity. They know that they need to live reverently, they need to live honorably, they need to live accountably, they need to live responsibly, and by that they are actually fulfilling the moral of the Lord. That's what we are talking about. That when the grace of God is at work in one's life, it even empowers them to fulfill and to obey and to follow through with what God has already decreed in his moral law. Once we understand that the law is a reflection of the character of God and that we who have now been changed and transformed into men and women that seek to honor the Lord, we want to honor him according to his character, we want to please him according to his nature and by doing that we so fulfill the grace of the Lord, we so fulfill the law of the Lord. So grace and law are not enemies, they are not in competition. They actually work together. Grace gives you the power to obey the law. 
And as you obey God's law, you receive more grace to enable you to live right in the presence of the Lord. It is important that as believers we understand that. That out of the respect for the grace that has been lavished upon us, we seek to live right in the presence of the Lord. And as we live right and in obedience to what God has shown to be His holy will and character, we actually fulfill the law, but as well celebrate the grace that God has given us. When believers obey the law of God, they are enriched in God's grace. When believers appreciate the grace of God, they are given the power to obey the law of the Lord. And that's how they work together. May the Lord bless you so much as you think through this. My prayer is that you will not be taken up by the error of the modern grace movement, but in reverence, in fear of God's character and holy will, that we celebrate God's grace as we live in obedience to the law of Christ. God bless you. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.